0: So, these are my childhood friends. We get together over the holidays. The guy on the very left, his name's Caleb. He's actually one of my first friends. Uh, I had a hard time making friends. I met him in elementary school, like fifth grade. But he's in Hong Kong now for the last five years. So, we miss him a lot. And then when we come together, we kind of revert to our childhood past of like gaming. Now, we make good steak and we drink whiskey as well. So, I guess we didn't do that. In junior high, <laughs> those last two parts. Uh, Brian, the guy left of him, I actually got to officiate him and his wife's marriage, Michelle. And we grew up together from elementary school, uh, Michelle and I. And then, who's that? Oh, that's me in the middle. And then, uh, can't recognize myself. And then Garland, uh, junior high, played a lot of basketball together. And Ernest and I knew each other for our whole lives as well. He's a, he's a lawyer, detective guy. All of them have done really well for themselves um, let's see, and this is all of our families now, yeah, so we got together, and we went to a playground, and, um, the kids are playing, Liam was trying to play soccer, um, (laughs) that was hard for him, (laughs) (laughs) they were really nice to him, though, I think when I, think about, uh, friendships, and the kind of friends that I have in my life, that go back 20, 30 years, it's amazing to be a part of, that friendship family where there's nothing to prove anymore. Like, we've done some pretty cool things, me and my friends, but when we hang out with each other, we're not talking about our accomplishments. We're not comparing, um, you know, how much we make, especially I'm not comparing that. Um, it's just like we have nothing to prove. We don't need to impress anyone. We know each other for so many years. We've seen each other grow up, and we're just really comfortable. Uh, I probably slept on their floor like several times, each one. And there's just this sense of that we're family, that, that we care about each other. There, a lot of, all, of, all of them were my groomsmen except for uh, Brian, who, again, I got to marry. Um, yeah, so just really good friendships. And then I think about Renew. And maybe one of the most defining facets of our community is that, or our church is that there's real friendships forming. Uh, some life lifelong friendships. Even the last couple, the next couple weddings, being able to see people in each other's weddings as groomsmen or as bride bridesmaids. This is our women's retreat. We actually had forty people there. The next morning, uh, I think there's twenty something, and so there's a lot of women. And Liam, and so he had a great time. Um, we also had friendsgiving over this last weekend for college and young adults. That's Paul and Danielle. And then Paul got distracted. She's alone now. Um, and then we played Cards Against Humanity, our favorite church game. Um, a group photo. And then um, our college stu- guy, people had a, a Friendsgiving as well. There was like 20-some people, but then um, we didn't have a group photo. So we just have this creepy photo of Alex and Mark in the back. <coughs> And so, so much of what I love about this church is the family we've created. And even as I think about us having to move, maybe in the next month or two, I think back to uh, some of the hard times me and my family went through where we had to move homes, but the home never defined us. It was us, we were family in this space, and we were family in the next space. And I think that's going to be true. I know that's going to be true of us because it's about the relationship and the culture that we've created but I also think about this last year of us being family and how we've, we've fallen in love with each other and we got closer. And in this familyness, we, we hurt each other as well. We step on toes. We feel left out. Um, we question whether we really belong. And I, I think about family as people or friends that we are most loved by, but we are most hurt, hurt by as well. And I, my prayer is that as a community, we would stay together for the long haul, that we would be able to see if we're young adults, each other get married and play with each other's kids and watch them grow up and feel super comfortable. Um, but I also know that one of the, the largest reasons people leave church is because they're in conflict with someone else. Uh, someone gossiped about them, someone hurt their feelings. And even this morning, I can think about people who aren't here because of that in our community, because they feel hurt. And so when I think about what it looks like for us to go long-term, for us to go 20 years as a community, as friends, it really means that we are going to experience hurt, and we have to learn how to work through it in a healthy way. We have to learn what it means to forgive each other and to reconcile. And when I, I grieve when I see people... Um, go from one friendship group to another or go from one church to another because they don't know how to work through pain, because they don't know how to forgive, because they don't know how to have the hard conversations. And so they become a part of a community. They get really excited, uh, that, and, it's, and it's hyped, and it's Facebook and filtered, and and then the relationships get real, and they get hurt. And if they, if you, if I don't know how to work through that hurt, uh, we just leave and start over Um, for the rest of our lives sometimes. Sometimes in our marriages, sometimes in our closest friendships or with our families. I've seen brothers stop talking to each other because of a stupid, stupid feud, right? Sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's just dumb. But they break up like family relationships because they don't know how to have the hard conversations, and that's what we're looking at today when we think about and examine Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. But this is really about what it looks like to resolve conflict. Some of that, um, some, some of it's going to apply to the people in your room, in your families, your coworkers, and here Jesus is talking about what it means to be someone who is a part of His kingdom. Just like Moses went on Mount Sinai to inaugurate the kingdom of Israel uh, after they became slaves, he told them what it means to live under the kingdom of God. Jesus is doing the same thing on this mountain. As he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling us what it means to be a part of the Christian community. What are its distinctives and its values? What makes us as a church, as Christians, different then all these other religions, then secular communities. What is it that's different about our community? And Jesus here is talking to his disciples. And he knows that the crowd is listening in. And ultimately, he's giving discipleship lessons. This is Jesus' discipleship curriculum to all Christians. What does it mean to follow him? And he sits back and he gives us the Beatitudes, kind of our heart posture as we come into his kingdom, as a foundation of principles in which to interpret the rest of these sermons. Then he gives us these one-liners about how he's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He's not contradicting the Old Testament and the laws that Moses has established. Instead, he's come to fill it with meaning, fill it with himself, uh, fulfill it in terms of righteousness. And then he moves on to six specific Old Testament laws that he's going to address. The first one being murder. And he is going to give uh, these comparisons between how he views and interprets the law in in an authoritative way as opposed to the current interpretations from the Pharisees. And here are the specific distinctives. First, he's going to lean on his own authority. And so he says, you have heard it said, right? The Pharisees have said this. They've quoted other Pharisees, other teachers of the law prior to them. Most Pharisees won't share from their own interpretation. They'll say, hey, this great guru in the past said this. And they'll quote from them. But in 22, nine times in this uh, sermon, Jesus says, but I say to you. So there's this authority of we're, you're not, we're not quoting from the past. It's not on human authority, but I'm going to interpret this passage with the authority of God, right? I am the word of God. I'm the one who gifted you with the scriptures. Now I'm going to tell you what it means. And secondly, a difference is going to be the Pharisees' value for the external letter of the law and keeping that. And if you think about the context, it was very important because in Israel's history, they kept abandoning the law. They kept disobeying God and worshiping other idols. And, and then we had this giant exodus where, where they're scattered throughout the Middle East because they gave up God for other idols, because they gave up scripture for other religions. And then God gathers them together. If you think about Nehemiah and Ezra. And then we go from kind of this liberal loose dropping of God and the laws to this tightening grip to legalism. And that's the context in which Jesus is talking to. All of these Israelites are definitely afraid of what happened in the past, but they've turned from l- l- being liberal to being legalistic. And now they're all about keeping the law, but not about loving God and loving their la- neighbors. They're all about keeping the law in the external aspects, but not in their heart. And so that's why Jesus is saying, hey, you, you're so focused on keeping this law of not murdering, but what about hating somebody? What about your hearts? You're huge on not committing adultery, not having sex outside of marriage, but what about your heart? What about lusting after another woman? You have 400 laws on what it means to keep the Sabbath holy, but are you really resting in the Lord? In your souls. So Jesus is filling the law with meaning, saying it's not about this external behavioral modification, as Justin likes to say, but it's about heart change and a heart check. I think, in a, in a subordinate way, he is speaking also to this rich young ruler who says, I've kept all the laws since I was a kid. He's speaking to my friend who I play volleyball with. He served as a firefighter for 30 plus years as an L.A. police officer, um, doing, being a medic. He's literally saved lives. Great husband of 30 years, loves his daughter, plays good volleyball, but also serves people. He sets up the lines, he comes early. He wants to bring other people in. Pretty sure he's not a Christian. And Jesus is telling him, Right, I look up to him. I think he's a great guy. And, and he, he knows that he's done really well ethically. He has a high moral caliber. But, he, but Jesus would sit down with him and say, okay, you haven't murdered, you haven't stolen, you haven't beat up anybody, but have you hated someone? Okay, you've been faithful to your wife, but when you're playing volleyball, do your eyes wander? And we all are humbled by what it means to be righteous in the eyes of God. So these are the differences in which uh, Jesus and the Pharisees hold when they look at the law. That it's not about earning righteousness and fulfilling the law on our own strength and with our own ethics. It's about this dependence on the Lord, humbling ourselves, just like the Beatitudes, and saying, God, I need you, and I want you to change my heart. And that's probably one of the most fundamental um, things that happen when we become Christian. I had this great, beautiful conversation with a person who's been coming to church, learning about the Christian faith, not a Christian. There's about 10 people in this room like that. So if you're not a Christian but trying to learn about it, this is a safe space. And he asked me, what does it mean to become a Christian? Like, do I have to come to church more? How much money do I have to give? Um, You know, what ethics do I have to live? And I said, it's not about being good before becoming Christian. It's about becoming Christian and then becoming good because we're following Jesus. And so what happens is we ask Jesus to forgive us and we say we want to follow him. And then the first thing he does is he realigns our hearts. He does this heart change. And he gives us the spirit so that we're able to live out these changes. When we fail, we ask him for forgiveness. All right, now let's look at this passage more in detail. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That second part, the Pharisees added in. And he's correcting that because that's their focal point that if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. Jesus says, Jesus fills it with this hard intention. But I tell you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Man, that's, that's, man. Anyways, um, all of us should be a little scared. So when it talks about anger, He, again, is speaking about the internal posture of our heart. Sure, we didn't hate, uh, murder anyone, but is there this internal anger or bitterness or hatred growing inside of us? Because when you think about violence all the way to murder, it doesn't happen outside of anger. And so Jesus is doing a heart check. Even though you didn't kill somebody, has your heart killed someone? Um, and that's exactly what First John says. It, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So when you think about the people in your family, when you think about your coworkers, when you think about people in, their, in this room, are there people that you hate, that you have a growing anger and bitterness towards? Are there people that you say they're not, I wish they weren't a part of this community. Um, I really don't like them. And when it says "insult, your brother or sister, it's saying, are there people in your community that you have labeled? Um, I'm trying to think of names that don't exist here. Let's see. Bobby, the conceited you know person, or Josephine. Do we have a Josephine? who's all about image management, or Kenneth, who, um, not related to Dr. Ken or Kenya, Kenneth, who is super judgmental, you know? Um, When we look around the room, or when we look at our families, have we dismissed a person, or have have we replaced a person's name with a character flaw or with a category? in a dismissive way? how we redefined a person with the attribute that they're weakened or with the wrong that they did to us? And I know, man, even just, again, there's so much good in this community, but I hear this, right? I hear the way sometimes we bring up people and we attach something negative to them in a dismissive way. And Jesus says, that's a serious offense, and when it says, you fool, it's speaking about a character attack. It's speaking about someone deeming someone worthless, deeming someone to have no value. It's, it's taking someone who is a child of God, who is loved by Jesus and saying, they're actually not worth much. When I think about our community, I wonder if we have lifted people up in honor. If we have said that this person, even in their weakness, even in their struggle, has value, should, that we have hope for them, that we love them, or have we just kind of tossed people aside because of their weakness or, or dismissed them like they'll never change? When I think about the most serious verses in Scripture, it's speaking to us not loving our brothers and sisters in our hearts. Or not forgiving them. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, it says, If you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive you your sin. One of the greatest evidences that we are Christian is that we are forgiven by God. And that's demonstrated in how we forgive others. One of the greatest evidences is in, that, is in our Christianity is that we understand the de- depravity of our hearts, the need for grace in our sin. And then we demonstrate that by giving grace to others in this, in this really generous way, not because we're fixated on the other person, not because they deserve it, right? No one deserves our forgiveness. That's why it's forgiveness. And so if I just, if ben, Benedict offended me and I just focus on me and him, he would have to earn forgiveness from me. But if I said first, Lord, the cross, your forgiveness, your grace, and then I look at Ben. How can I not forgive him? And that's what Jesus is saying. But I also want to say that forgiveness is extremely difficult. I actually don't think there's a harder thing you can do in this life but forgive someone who's really hurt you. Uh, I've never done anything harder. So I don't want to say this in a dismissive way. There's great pain and death And forgiveness. Great death. But there's this great theologian who said, we are most like God when we forgive. And when I think about the pain of death in forgiving someone, death to our pride, death to ourself, Jesus dies literally to forgive us. He experiences death to give the relationship between us and him life. To be a follower, follower of Jesus means that we experience that death as well, to forgive and hopefully to give life to those relationships. In verse 23, it says, If you... Are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there. Go uh, before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother or sister, and come and offer your gift. What God, God is saying is that being right with your brother or sister is more important to him than you leading worship you giving offering, you singing songs, you serving in this community. It's of greatest importance. And I think if you're a parent, you'll understand, right? Like no matter how, if I had a daughter, God, you know, please Lord, one day. um, Although we were at our family potluck and pretty much every family came up and said, If God is just, your second child will not be as easy as your first, you know? like (laughs) Liam is so chill, right? And they're like, "Mm, God's going to get you. Um, And and Nina reminds me of that. Anyways, but if I have a daughter and, and Liam, and Liam is like being mean to my daughter, or even if they're just fighting, right? But he's like painting stuff for me. He's cutting apples for me. You know, he's giving me huge hugs. It would still pain me. It, it's like my relationship will still be hurting because him and my hypothetical daughter named Grace, uh, <laughs> who's just uh, beautiful uh, throughout, um, will aren't getting along. And that's how God feels about us, right? As much as we sing worship songs and pray, as much as we say we love him, if there's someone in the community we hate, it pains him. And he says, make that right first. And, and there's this priority to it. There's do that first before you do all these other things. First, be reconciled. And when we do it first, we're able to avoid a growing anger and bitterness. When we talk to the person first, we're, we stop labeling them, and we don't, we don't devalue them. But when we give time, God, Satan is going to use all of that to grow our anger, to grow our bitterness, to grow our thinking that they're worthless. You know, just this week, me and Nina, we had we had a fight. It went for like 20, 35 hours. You know, it was a long fight for us. And um, I asked her permission to share, and she reluctantly agreed. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's real permission. But anyways, um, you know, I felt like she wasn't listening well. And then I just kind of like got really mad at her. And, uh, and we, we didn't talk for the next day because we were both really busy. But all of those things that we talked about, I was seeing Satan do in my heart, uh, being bitter at her. Like, man, she does not care about me. Like this was my best story and she just, I couldn't even get her attention, right? I, I sent her a text like, I listened to you for 40 minutes, which was really probably 15. I rubbed your feet for 10 minutes, which is probably really two. And I couldn't even keep your attention for five minutes, which is really 30 seconds, right? And, um, and I was just mad at her. And, and, and there was just this growing anger inside of me where I started to think of her as just a bad listener. And where I just started getting really bitter at her. But when I actually sat down and spoke to her, it just changed everything. You know, I got to see from her perspective. I got to, <laughs> I got to apologize for my mean texts and hear her apologize uh, to me as well. And see the ways where she was trying to listen. Um, you know, when I think about the urgency of reconciliation, in, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get. The more Satan is going to do all of those things uh, to divide you and this other person, and and you know what the earliest moment that you can talk to this person is right now. It can't get earlier than right now. All right. So some of you have waited for a few years. You can't go back in time, but you can do it at the earliest possible moment, right now. All right. So what are so we see some priorities. Um, for God as he's talking about reconciliation. And then before we go into the process of reconciliation, which is really where we're going to land today, what should you do when someone is complaining to you or gossiping to you or talking to you about another person? I think first listen to them, but also listen to the Holy Spirit as, as you listen to them. And I think it's okay to empathize or even validate the pain and hurt that they're going through. And we're going to hurt and cause pain towards each other as we become closer family members. But these are all the harder things that I feel like we don't do well and we've never done well um, and is a model to us. But how, as we listen to pain, can we still honor the person's value um, because that's something Satan's going to attack? How do we say, okay, I heard what you said, but this person still has value. And how do we give another perspective for that person? Because oftentimes when we're angry, angry at someone, we're just going to hone in on that one flaw, but to paint this person more holistically again. Uh, I remember someone complaining about one of our guys. Uh, they're both in our community, and I was able to listen, and some of the points they brought up were probably valid, but I got to say, hey, actually I know that this person is working on it. I've seen them grow in this area. We all have weaknesses, right? And, and, and this isn't all that of who they are. And I hope that we could do that for each other. I hope that someone can do that for you as well. And I would say aggressively pursue or facilitate reconciliation. Aggressively pursue them meeting together one-on-one to talk through this. And I've offered in that same situation, if you can't talk to this person, I would love to be there to talk to them. Or I would even try to help, like, give a time limit. Like, why, don't, why, why, not wait? why not do it this week? The next time you see this person, can you sit down and talk to them? Because at the end of the day, like, if me and Grace are fighting, I, <laughs> which I fought with a lot of people, right? I've never reconciled, reconciled with a person I'm fighting with by talking to another person. I've never done it. And, I, and, and somehow we think that that's possible. It's not possible, I, one of the best things you can do to grow your relationship is to make a decision to sit with, down with that person one on one. And one of the best things you can do for our community is that when you hear someone complaining, push them towards having that hard conversation. Say that you're willing to sit down with both of them. You know, it's so easy just to buy into a hero villain mentality, to be like, Oftentimes, when I tell the story of my conflicts, I'm the hero or the victim, and they're always the villain. And when I tell the story to someone else, I'm the hero or the villain, and they're always the or the victim, and they're always the villain. And um, we can just kind of side with that person. But instead, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Pray with them later. Ask them if they've initiated, or repeat the process. You know. If, they come, if this person came up to me again to complain about the same thing, I would try to go quicker into the reconciliation phase. Hey, um, have you initiated a conversation? And if that conversation blows up, can you bring someone who's wiser than both of you to help facilitate it? All right, here's some of the things that I try to do in my reconciliation process. Again, very difficult. I think a lot of our families didn't model this to us well. I had a mentor say that uh, most uh, people b- always marry conflict resolution and anger, right? Like they've never seen their parents correct them without being super angry. But he says it's possible, and I've been able to do this many times, probably dozens of times with people at our church and uh, with others, sometimes not perfectly, most of the times not perfectly. Okay, here we go, pregame. game so before I enter into a conversation, these are the things I try to do. I try to own my part in the hurt, right? To move my, even my own mind away from victim and villain mentality and say, what, where did I contribute to this? And even with Nina, when I was in my own head with her being a bad listener, I thought, is this something, like why do I need to be listened to? Is there parts of my pride that I'm staking here? Is there parts of my identity that I'm staking here? And how did I, maybe I didn't serve her the way I needed to uh, that day, or maybe, anyway, so what is it about me that, ha, that is feeling this conflict? Is there something I need to own? And then secondly, to, before the conversation, to choose to forgive because God has forgiven you. And um, reconciliation takes two people, but forgiveness only takes one. And forgiveness is a choice. It can be a choice that we have to choose a hundred times, but it is a choice that we get to choose. Despite our feelings, despite our hurt, we can choose to forgive. So just saying, God, before I have this conversation, I forgive them, which again is very difficult. Praying a blessing over them. I've noticed that either I'm blessing a person or I'm cursing a person, but I'm not doing both. So how do I choose to bless them and how do I go into this conversation where it's not about them feeling the pain I'm feeling, basically where it's not about me, but I'm really there to serve them becoming better. And that can immediately become a pride thing where we're not willing to listen to our own stuff, but ultimately can I take a posture of service with them instead of a posture of you need to feel the pain I'm feeling. Now, (laughs) this <laughs> if you're waiting to talk to them one on one after all of these things are done in completion it might take 5 to 10 years so don't do that you know i would say strive to get to face the direction of these things but even if it's half baked sit down with them as fast as you can does that make sense don't let this be an excuse for why you're not talking to someone one on one all right phase 2 the talk so initiate a one on one conversation Really try to do it in a way where there's no one around, uh, where you can give each other undivided attention. And then go for clarity over confrontation. And share about how you felt and not about the facts. That was my first mistake in texting Nina. First, it was a text. First, you know, bad. Secondly, I was sharing facts, which I don't know the facts. I really know how I felt. And I think that's a humble position to take where you're saying, when I come into this conversation, I don't know how they thought. I don't know what their intentions were. I don't know the circumstances surrounding them. All I know is how I felt. And you're going in willing to receive uh, the facts from them, being open and humble to their perspective. And my mom taught me this when me and my sister were kids, la la so halpenyo, which means hold hands and be friends again. <laughs> Uh, it's super cute. So I think um, when I'm able to do this well uh, with brothers and sisters in our community, um, you know, I, I, I feel that God is so present. And we're, when we're able to pray for each other and extend forgiveness towards each other and become brothers and sisters again, those are some of the most intimate moments I've had with the Lord. Those, are the, those rival my moments of prayer and worship and being in his word. I just feel God smiling. Um, I hope that when you think about building out lifelong relationships, you have to do this. When I think about all the friends that I just showed you in that photo, I've done this with all of them. And I assume that as I get closer with someone, I'm going to hurt them. And so like on staff, whenever someone's stepping off a staff uh, on our team, I always sit down with them like, okay, can you share with me how I've hurt you over this last year so I can apologize? I just assume that I've hurt them, but they can't talk to me about it because I was their boss for a while, you know? Um, Are we willing to to do this for friendship? Are we willing to do this because we're a citizen in God's kingdom? Are we willing to do this because Jesus forgave us first? And then there's post-game. So don't expect them to change quickly. If it's a real character issue, they're not going to be different all of a sudden. Um, and I think we need to be able to meet them where they're at and to surrender them to the Spirit for change. Our job isn't to change them. Our job is to ask the Lord to change them and then to see if we could play a role in it. If they ask, if the Spirit asks us. And there's people in this community that I got to shepherd and walk with in their in their weakness. And... And it's a beautiful thing because now I'm not a spectator and I'm not a critic. I'm a part of their team. And it actually makes me really defensive of them when someone else points out their weakness because I'm like, dude, they're trying their best to be better and I see all of their effort. Please don't pigeonhole them and label them. Come alongside of them. Um, And I think ultimately, how do we see people past their weakness? How do we take off the labels and put the one label that is true, we're all his kids. And we need to value each other because of that. Um, yeah, I remember finally sitting down with Nina just at her night. And um, apologizing and being able to say, hey, like, I'm sorry, not just for our conflict, but for all of the internal stuff in my heart. And... um I'm sorry for thinking you don't value me or our relationship because you didn't listen to me well in this one moment. And dismissing you going to work, bearing our child, being an amazing mom doing CM right now, right? We could just kind of focus in and not see all the things that they are to us. Um, And then we got a la la so jalpeno, you know? We held hands. Um... And I also think about in marriage how we do this, we have to do this often if we want our marriage to be okay and grow, and how it can easily, things can stack, right? So, me and Nina, when we fought about this, it was because I felt this way many times. And I didn't really forgive her. I just kind of got mad, or I forgave her for that moment, but I wasn't willing to to erase the past and say, let's start over. I wasn't willing to meet her where she is and say, hey, let's walk forward in this. I wasn't able to look at the effort she was pu- putting in. And, you know, that's, those are things that I really need to grow in. And she's saying to me, Wilson, you know, like, you have to be more patient and not just like walk away and shut down. And she's willing to sit down with me and help me be better as well. Um, I hope that as we think about church as family, we would be willing to do these things for each other. That's a story I had that I'm not going to share. Okay. Um, who do I need to initiate a conversation with? And I would love for us to just kind of pray f- to pray for each other, um, to experience the gospel of reconciliation. What I envision for our service after we pray for each other is that we would take communion and remember in a deeply humble way how God's forgiven us, how he's loved us, how he's paid for our sin by dying the cross for us. And then the way he forgave us, where it's total and complete, he doesn't ask us to earn back favor, he doesn't uh, require us to change right away for forgiveness, And then take all of that and say, how do I gift that to someone that I've been having a hard time to forgive? And I really challenge you this morning, if there's someone in this room that you need to have a conversation with, would you think about doing that before singing a verse in this song, before giving offering? Um, that you would walk up to them and say, hey, can we, can we just talk and pray for each other? If there's someone who's been complaining to you a lot, would you maybe encourage them to reconcile with someone in our community? If it's a family member or an old friend, maybe just send a text and say, hey, like, can we have coffee sometime? I need to talk to you. I just pray that that would be how we live this sermon. It wouldn't just be empty words but it would be us using this moment to rebuild a relationship, to ask for forgiveness or to forgive somebody. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us and I would love for us as, as we take communion and receive the forgiveness of the Lord, intentionally extend that forgiveness and reconcile with someone else. Father, we come to you and We want to be citizens of this kingdom. And the first thing you say is that we got in because you forgave us, and so we need to forgive other people. The first evidence of being in your kingdom is that as we're forgiven, we forgive. As we're reconciled to you, we reconcile to each other. And so as we pray for each other, as we take communion and remember the great cost you bore to bring us home, would we live these intentions and these words? Would we reach out around this room? Would we reach out into our families, into our workspace, our friendships, to forgive and to reconcile those in our lives. I just pray that none of us will walk away from this room before we make these decisions, that this would be a real moment, not just listening to an academic sermon, but a life change, a relational change, a change of perspective, a mind change um, in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go ahead and go back to your small groups and pray for each other? And then would you, as a small group, take communion together and then make an effort um, to forgive and reconcile?